In practically all cases, when God does something amazing, He uses a person. He chose Mary to be the mother of Jesus. He chose Joseph to watch out for Mary and the baby Jesus. He chose Joshua to lead the people of Israel into the land of Canaan. He chose Paul to take the good news of Christ to the Gentiles. How does God go about choosing people? I'll bet you would like God to use you for some important task. What qualities do you need to become a candidate for God's blessing? We find part of our answer by looking at a man named Gideon in Israel during the time of the judges. This is the fourth in a series of messages called How a Nation Unravels. We're looking at the people of Israel during the time of the judges so we don't repeat their mistakes. Judges records a dark time in Israel when everyone did as he saw fit. It was a time of anarchy. God delivered the people of Israel from the land of Egypt. Then he miraculously brought them into the land of Canaan. He commanded them to drive out all the people living there. Although the Israelites drove out many of the people, uh, they failed to dislodge them all. Instead, they allowed the Canaanites to work for them, become friends with them, marry them, teach them their religious practices of worshiping the false gods of Baal, engage in religious prostitution, which involved using sex in the religious ceremonies, and sacrificing children on fires to the god Moloch. The Canaanites were involved in some dark practices. Turn in your Bible to Judges chapter 6. If you want to use one of ours, it's on page 240. We find here another cycle of going into bondage. Uh, the first step in the cycle was always compromise. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. The Israelites compromised by not driving out all the people who lived in that land. They thought it won't hurt if we allow a few of them to live in the hills around our cities. Besides, they can be our servants. As might be expected, soon they adopted their practices. We've made compromises in our country. Some people say it doesn't matter if we're not a Christian nation anymore. It never was founded as a Christian nation. When you say that, you might be technically correct. We agreed on religious freedom for people of all faiths. But certainly the leaders who founded this nation, most of them were Christians. The Mayflower Compact on November 11th, 1620, they pledged themselves in the name of God and for the glory of God to advance the Christian faith. That's why they came. Our founding fathers were practically all Bible-believing, church-attending followers of Christ. There were no liberal Protestant churches in those days, so these were all the real deal, followers of Christ. The few who weren't were deists. Deists believed that God created the world and then let it go. But even deists believe in God and that right and wrong are based on God's holy character. Our founders all knew that democracy only works 
for a virtuous people who sustain good lives by their faith. When we embraced evolutionary theory, we gave up God and right and wrong. And we gave up the, the foundation for a successful democracy. The second step in the cycle is disobedience. God said, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites, kind of the same as the Canaanites, in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. They disobeyed. The third step in the cycle was bondage. Look what happened to them. And for seven years, he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel. Neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count the men and their camels. They invaded the land to ravages. So whenever it was harvest time, they would come and plunder their harvest. And they did it through camel warfare. They came riding on camels. Step four in the cycle was they cried out to God. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. Finally, after seven years of living in poverty and humiliation, the people of Israel came to their senses and said, God, save us. Step five in the cycle was salvation. God chose a man named Gideon to deliver them. When God tapped Gideon, Gideon thought God had made a mistake. But Lord, Gideon asked, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. Like Moses, Jeremiah, other leaders God has picked through the years, Gideon felt inadequate. Possibly like Gideon, you feel inadequate. Maybe you've volunteered to serve in some ministry and you feel totally overwhelmed. Could be that you're new to faith. and You have difficulty knowing how God can possibly use you. Feelings of inadequacy do not disqualify you from ministry. In fact, I believe people are more usable by God when they have feelings of being inadequate. When people feel confident, they usually fall flat on their faces. But it's amazing what God can do with people who say, God, I can't do this. I need your help. In the 1980s, Jory and I were called to Sunset Presbyterian Church. Uh, the year before we arrived, the church had averaged 20 people in worship. And the church had discussed uh, disbanding. Fellow Presbyterian pastors warned me that there was division in the church and it would eat me alive. We knew that unless God gave us 
the victory, we would have no chance of success. When we started Portland Community Church, we had similar feelings. I believe that feelings of inadequacy make us more usable in God's hands. Gideon felt inadequate for the task God gave him. What is God's cure for inadequacy? The last two weeks, we looked at what happens to a nation, church, or individual that gets caught in a downward spiral of moral compromise. Today, we want to look at the person God uses to turn the tide of corruption. Just as in Gideon's day, many people, maybe most people in our country, have, a God, have abandoned God's moral absolutes and determined for themselves what is right and wrong. As a result, our country has seen a steady decline in moral values. God is looking for people to turn the tide of compromise. If you feel ill-equipped for this task, how does God help you feel like you're a match for the challenge? God can use you for an important task. By looking at six steps God used in Gideon's life, we can see how God makes us adequate to the challenge of living today. First, God promises to be with us. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites together. By ourselves, we're inadequate for Christ's work, but with Christ, we're more than a match for whatever challenge we face today. Second, he calls us to use the abilities he has given us. We all have abilities. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash, the Abiezrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. So the Midianites would come and plunder their crops. So Gideon was a clever fellow. He took his crops down into the wine press where they couldn't see him. In verse 12, the Lord called Gideon a mighty warrior. In verse, verse 14, he told him, go in the strength you have. Go in the strength you already have. Apparently, Gideon was a valiant warrior and an experienced fighter. But sir, Gideon replied, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our father told us about? When they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and put us into the hand of Midian. Gideon felt strongly about Israel. He couldn't understand why God had allowed them to be oppressed by the Midianites. Third, he gives us assurances to dispel our doubts. People who serve the Lord still have doubts. Everyone has unanswered questions. Gideon did. Gideon replied, If now I have found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that is really you talking to me. This is a big job, defeating the Midianites. I have to know if it's really you, Lord, talking to me. 
with the tip of his staff that was in his hand, the angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread. Fire flared from the rock, consuming the meat and the bread. And the angel of the Lord disappeared. When Gideon realized that it was the angel of the Lord, he exclaimed, Ah, sovereign Lord, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. Now Gideon knew he was being sent by God. Sometime later, before he took the 32,000 Israelite members of the army into battle against 150,000 Midianites, Gideon got the jitters. So, he asked God for more assurance. Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have promised, look, I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. Uh, if there is dew only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you said. And that is what happened. Gideon rose early the next day. He squeezed the fleece and wrung out the dew, a bowlful of water. So then he thought about it and he thought, you know, it'd be pretty easy. Israel has kind of dry weather and gets pretty hot. It'd be easy for the fleece to still be wet and the ground around it, you know, to dry pretty quickly. So he said, God, I got one more for you. Do not be angry with me. Let me make just one more request. I want to make sure. Allow me one more test with the fleece. This time, make the fleece dry and the ground covered with dew. That night, God did so. Only the fleece was dry. All the ground was covered with dew. Gideon did not sleep much that night. He was wondering about what's going on outside with the weather, what God was doing. Early in the morning, he went outside. The ground was so wet and muddy that he got his Nikes dirty. And he found the fleece was bone dry. People that know very little about Gideon have probably heard about Gideon's fleece, asking God for these signs. Notice that when Gideon asks for signs, God is not angry. In my book, Praying for Guidance, I tell us that praying for signs is probably not the best way uh, to know God's will for your life. But if you're unsure about what you should do, it's okay to ask for some sort of indication from God. When I graduated from college, I was working at Valley Community Presbyterian Presbyterian Church as their summer youth intern, and uh, I decided I was going to become a pastor, and so I enrolled in seminary. I enrolled in Trinity University in Chicago and Fuller Seminary in Pasadena. Then I asked God, you got to show me which one to go to. Give me some sort of indication. Well, God did. Trinity accepted my application right away. Fuller was slow. I wanted to work in Young Life while I was there, and the, the Chicago Young Life people were thrilled. And they called every week, have you decided yet? Are you coming? The Young Life staff in Pasadena couldn't care less whether I came to L.A. They had so many leaders. And I talked to three different people who didn't know each other, and you know, what do you think I should do? And all three of them said, 
I think you should go to Trinity University. And so that's what I did. And I think the main reason I went there, not only did I get a great education, but that's where I met Jory, my wife who grew up in Chicago. And she became my head young life leader. If you're uncertain what God wants you to do, ask him. Fourth, he requires that we put our faith into practice at home. When God called Gideon to deliver the Israelites from the Midianites, he said, before you can go, you have to first get your own home in order. Before he could call the nation back to God, he had to call his family back to God. That same night, the Lord said to him, take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old. Tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on the top of this height. Using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down, offer the second bull as a burnt offering. Now look at the response. In the morning, when the men of the town got up, there was Baal's altar demolished with the Asherah pole beside it cut down. And the second bull sacrificed on the newly built altar. They asked each other, who did this? When they carefully investigated, they were told Gideon, son of Joash, did it. The men of the town demanded of Joash, bring out your son. He must die because he has broken down Baal's altar and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. I notice what Joash responds. But Joash replied, are you going to plead Baal's cause? Are you trying to save him? Whoever fights for him shall be put to death by morning. If Baal really is a god, he can defend himself when someone breaks down his altar. Gideon's obedience kindles his father's faith, rekindles it. Many of us are concerned about the moral decay in our country. We know we've slipped a lot from the direction our founding fathers set for our nation. We want to do something about the decline. But before we can do anything, we have to get our families. As we saw two weeks ago, as the family goes, so goes the nation. We cannot reach the people of Portland unless we first reach our families. We need to establish practices such as coming to church together, reading the Bible and praying together, and getting our kids involved in the kids space program and youth program. Fifth, he puts us in situations beyond our capabilities so that he will receive the glory. Early in the morning, Gideon and all his men camped at the spring of Harod. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Morah. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men for me to deliver Midian into their hands. Why did God say that? In order that Israel may not boast against me that her own strength has saved her, announce now to the people, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left while 10,000 remained. Gideon had to be bummed to see two-thirds of his army leave. But the Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many men. Take them down to the water, and I will sift them for you there. 
If I say, this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say, this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the man down to the water. There the Lord told him, separate those who lap the water with their tongues like a dog from those who kneel down to drink. 300 men lapped with their hands. In other words, they filled up their hands with water and they were just on one knee and they could drink while watching out for the enemy. And the rest, God says, let them go. The Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand. Let all the other men go, each to his own place. So God took away 97% of Gideon's army and had them leave. What was God doing? He was putting Gideon in a place where there was no way 300 men could defeat 150,000 Midianites. He had to depend on God. 300 against 150,000 is analogous to the Haitian police declaring war on the U.S., all Gideon could do was rely on God. In recent months, I have felt like God is putting me in a situation beyond my capabilities where He alone will receive the glory. Prior to coming to Portland Community Church, I had worked in Beaverton Young Life. Dozens of students gave their lives to Christ. Then I worked in Chicago Young Life and scores of high schoolers gave their lives to Christ. It was exciting. That's where Jory and I met. Then at Sunset Presbyterian Church, we had a fruitful ministry. For a number of years, we were the fastest growing church in the Presbyterian Church USA. I was invited to speak at conferences at why the church was growing so rapidly. It was heady stuff. In every ministry, God has put us in. God has blessed us with people coming to faith in Christ. This year, we've seen a lot of new people coming to our church. We've seen an even larger number of new people coming to our church online. Half dozen people have prayed to give their lives to Christ in the last few months. It's exciting. But during these two years of COVID, we've also seen a lot of people leave our church, move out of Portland and out of state. I feel like I'm on a treadmill. We're going forward and we're slipping back at the same time. I have to depend on God. Do you share some of my feelings? Are you in a place at home or work, at school, in your neighborhood or in some ministry where you realize unless God does a miracle, you're in trouble? Far from being a cause for despair, God has you right where he wants you, in a situation where you can only depend on him. Sixth, God insists on complete obedience. So how could 300 Israelites defeat 150,000 Midianites? Here was the plan God laid out for Gideon. Divide your men into three groups and circle around the Midianites Late at night, each one carried a trumpet and each one carried a torch covered by a pitcher. 
At the right moment, they blew their trumpets, they broke their pitchers, revealing the torch, and the, the noise and the, the, the light threw the Midianites into confusion, and they turned on each other with their swords, and then the rest of them fled. Like the people of Israel, during the time of the judges, our nation has strayed from God's commands into moral decay. But it's also creeping into our churches. George Gallup's organization did a survey where they found there's not much difference in the behaviors of Christians or church people and unchurched people. Churches were devastated. Gallup got so much negative feedback that he decided to do a do-over. So he surveyed again, and once again he found there's not much difference between church people and unchurched people in terms of their lifestyle, their behavior. But, he said, if you compare church people with Bible-believing, Bible-reading, church-attending followers of Christ, there's a big difference. That group only represents 13% of the U.S. population but they make a big impact in our country. What's he talking about? He's talking about Christians who are sold out to Christ. Lukewarm Christians don't make any impact. They're not any different from anybody else. But believers who are all in for Christ make a huge difference. They know they can never live transformed lives unless they depend totally on Christ. Are you this kind of believer? If you are, God can use you for an important task. But before God will use you, you have to give your life to Christ or recommit your life to Christ. And you can do so as we pray. Father, thank you for Gideon and his example. Somebody who was all in in following you, and what a difference you made through him. We want to do the same. We want to make a difference today in our world, in our city. And so we recommit our lives to you today. So I want to invite you to do that right now. You just pray where you are. Recommit your life to Christ, depending fully on him, so you can make a difference in this world. Or if you never... Ask Christ to come into your life. You can say right now, I believe in you. You were raised from the dead, and I want you to come and forgive my sins. You pray right now. Father God, thank you that you love us. You see what's going on in the world. You haven't abandoned it. But when you do something in this world, you choose to do it through people. And we want to be people that you use to make a difference. We offer ourselves to you today. In Jesus' name.